Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. You can go online right now to sunburymotors.com, and you can shop online. Well, you see when you go online, well, you'll see this great selection of brand-new Fords, brand-new Lincolns, brand-new Hyundais, brand-new Kias. Oh, and by the way, an impressive array of pre-owned inventory. Then you can shop online. You can pick out what you want, and guess what? You can take care of it online. All at SunburyMotors.com. Time now for our play-by-play call of the day. Penn State and Jawan Johnson win it at the wire. McSorley across the middle. Touchdown! Jawan Johnson. Penn State wins it. A walk-off touchdown. Wow. An 80-yard drive in 12 plays, a minute 42. And Trace McSorley, cool on that final drive. Indeed. Uh, And uh, that was at Kinnick Stadium. That's the first time that we ever had the privilege of doing the wave to the Children's Hospital was that night. Barkley was unbelievable that night. As fine a performance by a running back or any player as I've ever seen. He was incredible. And, of course, that winning drive, there's a big fourth down pass that Trace made to Saeed Blacknall. Kept the drive alive. And, of course, that was a fourth down play on the touchdown. And Barkley is the one that uh, picked up the blitz on the play. And Deshaun Hamilton was in the area as well. What a play. Ben Golliver joins us now to talk about the Jordan documentary from the Washington Post. Hope you and yours are safe. Ben, welcome. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Everything's great. Just laying low, taking it day by day. And I wish the same for you guys as well. All right, so have you learned anything? Actually, now, look, let, let's start with this. This has been, if you're of a young age, this is like, wow, it's all new to you. If you're older, I have found nothing new in this, but I've also found it intriguing and entertaining. Where do you fall on that? Well, I definitely think they're covering a lot of familiar territory. You know, they're kind of hitting, you know, playing the hits. It's sort of like MJ's greatest hits discography, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was a little bit young for the first few years of his career, so seeing some of the footage from, like, the mid-'80s has been good for me. Yeah. But I think the real takeaway from this has just been hearing Michael in his own voice running down a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these situations once and for all, kind of getting the last word and, Obviously, he saved some pretty pointed commentary for guys like Isaiah Thomas or, or Gary Payton over the weekend. But to me, that's the real magic of it. Because as a sports writer, you know, I've been wanting to interview Michael Jordan pretty much my whole career. And 
I spent a long time at Sports Illustrated. I mean, he's not even doing any interviews with Sports Illustrated after right. the whole baseball retirement fiasco. Right. So to get such extended access, I think, has been the real the real gem of this project. Uh, what it seems to me that if there's any person that hasn't quite come out perfectly in this, it's been Scottie Pippen, his contract, the Jerry Krause stuff. Waiting till midseason before he comes back. He has surgery really late in the process. Then, of course, when Jordan's out, he sits out the last play against the Knicks. It seems like he's the guy that hasn't come out well, even though he's a big reason why Jordan won. Yeah, you know, the the one thing Jordan did say was, hey, this is my best teammate I ever had. You know, I never won a title without him. And I think that was an important statement for Jordan to make. But you're yes. right. I mean, they're kind of cataloging the ups and downs of Pippen's career. I think my main takeaway from Pippen is that, you know, this kind of a situation, I don't think it would happen in today's NBA because, first of all, guys love being the number one player. They want to be on the front of the media guy. They want to be on all the tickets and the jersey sales and everything else. So for a guy as good as him to be willing to kind of subjugate himself and be that number two, you know, Robin to Batman for his entire prime or or most of it anyways – uh, is really extraordinary. You just don't see that a lot today. And then also, of course, we would never see a player sign such a long-term contract, you know, like a seven-year contract where he's just stuck and, and totally getting underpaid and, and kind of getting resentful because of that with no recourse. I mean, today the contracts are so much bigger, of course, you know, ten times what Pippen was making uh, during his Bulls heyday. And then also they're just shorter, so guys have more leverage and they, they wouldn't find themselves stuck. But yeah, I, I wound up coming away from this series having a little bit of sympathy or, or maybe even pity for Scottie Pippen. Now, of course, he treated Tony Kukoc you know, pretty poorly. I mean, there's a lot of hard feelings there, and he's not a saint by any stretch. No. But certainly you feel for a guy who's kind of stuck in a contract and also stuck in Michael Jordan's shadow at the same time. I do feel, though, Ben, they explain the Pippen contract as to why he signed it early really well, talking about his brother being in a wheelchair, his father being in a wheelchair. And when you enter college as a walk-on, and then finally some, somehow ascend to being a first-round pick of the Seattle Supersonics. Okay, so you came from nothing, now you're something, you've got problems at home, so he wanted the security. Oh, for sure. Well, life came at Scotty Pippen yeah. real fast, yeah. didn't it? I mean, it, yeah. his, his whole head is spinning. And I think one of the, the main takeaways from that contract is, you know, when he signs it, it's a, it's a pretty good deal. Like, it's a lot of money. It takes care of him forever. It gives him that financial security for his family that you're talking about. But what I don't think Scottie Pippen was able to foresee is how much the the business of the NBA took off in the 1990s. And the main reason right. why was Michael Jordan yeah. and the insane popularity. I mean, the NBA was a pretty big sport, kind of, or sorry, a niche sport in the 80s. And, and by the end of the 90s, you know, the, the Bulls are being described as maybe the most famous team in the entire world. And they've got, you know, tens of millions of people watching their NBA finals games. So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those situations where, like, did you buy into Apple stock, you know, early? You know, were, were you able to, like, watch it take off and, and make millions of dollars? Uh, you know, a lot of people had that opportunity to do it, but not very many people did. And I think Scottie Pippen sort of found himself in that situation where he just kind of locked in right before the boom. My first NBA watching was in the um, 60s with Russell and Chamberlain. All right, so I, so I have at least that perspective of watching it. I f- have felt, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, that Bird and Magic saved the NBA, but then Michael Jordan came in, and the reason everybody's making mo- big money today is because of what he did, just like what Tiger Woods did, allowed the pro golf tour to get more money. 
Oh, I can see that for sure. I mean, I think one of the best scenes of the whole documentary is when they're playing the preseason game in Paris, right? And it's called the McDonald's Classic yes. because that's one of Jordan's sponsors, right? Yep. And Jordan's over there. They're calling him the Pope. You know, he's taking Paris by storm. And then who shows up but David Stern, the commissioner, at a meaningless preseason game in Paris, right? And he just wants to be kind of in Jordan's aura. And they're shaking hands like they're old buddies. And Jordan's saying, hey, David, how is your wife? And, you know, it's almost like this uh, situation where here's the real power brokers of sport mm-hmm. kind of meeting head-to-head, right? And, uh, you know, that kind of a scene was just very difficult to imagine that, uh, you know, an NBA player would be welcomed and, you know, really idolized on a global stage if you go back even to the 70s or 80s. I mean, that's very difficult to picture. And so uh, I think for sure Jordan gets all sorts of credit in transforming the league, not only from a popularity standpoint, but also just from the business standpoint, you know. And uh, it was just in a completely different place. Uh, when he got there in 84 compared to, you know, when he retired in, in 98, at least the second time. You know, the other big factor, though, of course, is television. You know, and I think the, the director pointed this out to me in an interview I did with him, Jason Hare. He said, look, it's a perfect storm that ESPN starts taking off right at the same time, yep. you know, Michael Jordan is, is coming into the NBA so that the ESPN is really ready to, to provide this around-the-clock coverage. Um, you know, by the time that Jordan gets into his prime, it just everything kind of aligned perfectly. I have one quick side McDonald's classic story. The Celtics are in it as a, as the defending champion. It may have been the '87 or you know the '86 one. And Johnny Most, the legendary Celtics play-by-play guy, is over there to do the games. So you know, bam, Bird to McHale, McHale lays it in. Now they're playing Serbia. Twelve over to three, back to ten. Three now to twelve. Twelve <laughs> shoots and good. I'll tell you, twelve's a good shooter. <laughs> it's Johnny Most. Oh my goodness, the competitor that Jordan is. Um, which, if you watch his Hall of Fame speech, that's laced with him being the competitor. Uh, for example, Gary Payton. He couldn't guard me. Do you take that as? the confidence of Jordan or do you take that as a disrespect to somebody else's talent? Well, I think he kind of crossed the line at a couple points in, in this documentary <laughs> in terms of how just, you know, dismissive he was like, even with Clyde Drexler, you know, he's like, Oh, people wanted to say we're on the same level. And Jordan's like, it wasn't even close. It's like, well, did you need to go there? But here's what I'd say for someone as important to sports as he is, I would rather get the honest version. I would rather get oh, yes. you know what he's saying rather than the politically correct version, right? And so if, if that's how he feels and he's watching a videotape of Gary Payton talking some trash and he just wants to laugh hysterically and can barely contain himself, I'd like to see that. I think that's a nice window into his soul. I mean, part of the frustrating parts of this documentary have been when they've gotten to certain topics, whether it's gambling or politics or even his family, which is basically non-existent in this documentary, and Jordan doesn't want to have anything to do with it. You know, he barely even, uh, you know, he, he mumbles his way through some answers and, you know, he, he gives a kind of canned lines, but he's not really searching very deeply on those subjects. And that part's a little bit frustrating. I find when he's rehashing the rivalries, when he's, you know, really upset about the Pistons or if he's kind of going through Charles Barkley and, and Drexler and Gary Payton and explaining, you know, how fun it was to beat them and what their weaknesses were, I'm eating all that stuff up because that, that really seems yeah. like the passionate version of Jordan. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's some topics that he really does want to dive into, others that he doesn't want to dive into. But you know, that's the nature of any interview, right? Uh, you never know what's going to excite your subject. And once you get them going, uh, you really want to ride it as far as you can. I mean, that's why they put in the Rodman scene, right, where they're going to <laughs> Vegas. Because Jordan's, 
telling this story about Rodman going to Las Vegas, and it's like, well, how important is this really to the overall story of the Bulls? Probably not that important. You know, ultimately they win the title, and Rodman's playing pretty big minutes for them and everything else. But it's such a magical story of like, oh, we're bringing him out of bed, and Carmen Electra's there. And, you know, he, he disappeared <laughs> yeah. for three days and everything else. Of course you're going to let him tell that story, right? Well, of course you are. You know, but what's interesting is that um, there's so much talk today about load management all the time load management except for the time he had his knee injury when did Jordan do load management yeah I mean that's the thing 82 games every year I mean he had his own version though right he called it retirement he went to go play baseball yeah oh, that's right no, you know, yeah yeah it just came out in a different way, but I mean, this guy every single night, and you know, he's made this famous statement. You know, if there's a kid showing up to watch me play for the first time, you know, I want to make sure I put on a show. And he actually believed that and lived that out. Now, guys still say that to this day. It's kind of become a cliche, right? But some of those same guys are only playing 72 or 75 games rather than the full 82. Um, he had incredible health. He clearly took care of his body very well and, and took that pretty seriously, especially once he, he reached his prime years. Um, but the consistency factor is just incredible. I mean, to lead the league in scoring, I think, 11 times, basically every single year that he played, uh, you know, across the 90s, he led the league in scoring. Um, you know, he just brought it every single night. He really was, you know, deep down in his soul, just the ultimate alpha competitor. And I think you saw that uh, at the end of the first episode uh, on Sunday night where he's basically moved to tears yeah. by the idea that uh, somebody else wouldn't want to compete as hard as he does. And, like, you know, someone would say he's a bad guy because of how hard he competes. It's clear to me that's really what matters the most to him, right? That's the most important thing to him is this idea of an honest day's effort, putting your all your max in, and then, of course, winning at the end of the day. That's what he wants to do. And uh, I think that's been kind of the thesis of this entire project is, like, look, doesn't matter if you're playing quarters with the security guards. It doesn't matter if you're in the NBA Finals or the Olympics. Jordan wants to win no matter what. He could be playing cards on the plane. He wants to take your money, and, and he wants to make sure you know it. Right, and uh, and that's where he got in trouble on the golf course. You know? And that's <laughs> yeah. it's probably where he got in trouble, too, with maybe a, a couple of casinos along the way. I mean, I'm not saying he has, has a problem, but that's probably where he did because, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm losing? No, I'm not going to lose. Uh, but he also had to realize, I think, at some point he had no control over that stuff. His basketball, he did have control. It also seems interesting that it there's certain, like, he and Pippen are okay, he and Kerr are okay. But I know, and you read from other guys, like other guys played basketball with him and barely knew him, Ben. Well, you could tell because he's just so famous throughout that time period, right? And, like, some of those scenes, they're showing him in that back uh, room of the locker yeah. room. It's like he's got his own locker room separate from the team's locker room. And he's got, you know, 12 security guards, you know, bringing him off the court. Some of these games, you know, the, the one in Atlanta they show, he's drawn 65,000 people. I mean, that's just unheard of yeah. for a basketball game, you know. It's just a scope that we would never see in the modern NBA. And so I think that's, you know, that's a big part of the disconnect is they might both wear bulls on their chest, right? But one guy can't even go outside without having 500 people mob him for his autograph, right? And the other guy could walk through a mall and nobody would even recognize who he is, you know? And that's the, the biggest difference. And 
I was glad they got into that on the documentary, this idea of just kind of, um, you know, the oppressive nature of fame where it kind of boxes you in a little bit. Yep. And it's clear it did. It got to him mentally, right? Um, you know, he, he was isolating himself. He's smoking a lot of cigars. He's hanging out in his hotel room by himself. He just wants yeah. the peace and quiet. He doesn't want the chaos. And, you know, not very many athletes in sports history ever get to the level that he was at. And so it's hard to fault him for how he responded to that. Well, in fact, that that's what I found to be the saddest part about this. You would think that fame and fortune would bring with it enjoyment. And when during the season, when the two places where you could actually have some solace would be alone in your hotel room with nobody around or in that 94 by 50 when you're playing and everything else in between was a pain. I, mean, I found that sad. Oh, for sure. And he doesn't necessarily seem particularly happy or satisfied in his interviews all these years later. I mean, does it does seem kind of like maybe there's something missing or, um, you know, obviously I'm sure he was never happier than when he was competing. But I think that's a major question that this documentary raises is like, how happy is this guy? How satisfied is he? Yeah. You know, it's funny, though, because like, look at LeBron. His whole approach to this idea of fame is like, hey, I'm going to bring fans right into my house with my cell phone. I'm going to be yeah. videotaping myself with my kids at dinner. And talking to people in Jordan's camp for this documentary, they just do not understand that mentality at all. You know, it's like Jordan didn't even want people to film in his house, you know, for his sit-down interviews. So they, like, went and rented houses so that he could do the uh, the interviews. And here's LeBron saying, oh, it's Taco Tuesday, and here's me with my kids <laughs> at dinner. And it's just a completely True. different mentality and response to the fame thing. And, you know, the Jordan camp, they're just like, what is he doing? Why does he do this? You know, and it's just kind of funny to see that contrast. Well, here's the other part that's a contrast. Look at the number of people that show up at his retirement, all right? And you know what's interesting about that? Is that during all of this, all the pressure he got about the, with the Sam Smith book, the Jordan rules and other things that were happening, and all the articles that were written about him and about his dad passing away, there is no Twitter. There's no Internet. There's no Instagram. No Facebook. That doesn't exist. This is all over-the-air media, Ben, or print media. Right. I mean, he's on the front page of the newspaper, and he's on NBC Nightly News, right? I mean, it's a little bit yeah. different than just, you know, go, going trending on Twitter. I mean, that's the level of fame he got to. And I think that's why it's going to be hard for anyone to ever be in that same conversation with him in terms of fame and, and greatness from the NBA side because – the media environment has fractured so much, right? There's so many different places where you can go and get your uh, information today. And back then, uh, you know, there was there was just the big boys, basically. And, and yeah. he was dominating all of them. And, and, the, and the TV ratings kind of reflected that, too. That press conference where he retired was incredible. I mean, they said 300 reporters showed up, 100 cameras. And then you see him go play minor league baseball, right? And you have they have to put him at double A because there's so many people who want to follow him around as yeah. a minor league baseball player. And I was thinking, you know, my job, I've, I've written about the NBA since 2007. Right. So uh, you've got decades on me in this business. But um, I was thinking, what happens if LeBron goes play, to play minor league baseball? <laughs> Does my, do I now become a minor league baseball writer? You know, is, is that what would happen? Yeah. It's possible. I yeah. can see that decision being made, you know, because when these stars get to that level, uh, whatever they do is a big deal. So uh, I was actually a little bit jealous of the people who got to go down to Birmingham and they kind of follow him around. Mm. You know, it must have been fun to ask him questions. How did it feel to go one for four, you know, off of this field single and all yep. that kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Uh, if John Wall went 
to play baseball. He would be a footnote. If LeBron did, you would be out there every single day with the Bakersfield whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. I could see that. Uh, It sounds like there would be at least something on his family in parts 9 and 10 from what I understand. Uh, So it will be interesting to see how that plays out because you're right except I mean except really his mom's been in it his brother's a little bit the kids have only been shown in the stands uh, and of course there's been a lot on his dad but for the most part that part has been the part that's almost non-existent in this yeah and the director said beforehand it wasn't really his area of interest so that could just kind of be an editorial decision there it's true you know i I imagine jordan wanted some privacy too right um you know it does seem like he's tried to protect his family uh as best he can in various points it's just strange because like that time period 88 89 90 when he's taking over basketball 91 92 93 i mean he gets married and he has three kids during that time period and it's not mentioned once right and that, that part surprised me and they did show that one scene. He wins the title, and the PR guy is like, "Hey, do you want to call your wife?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, good idea." You know, and, <laughs> and nowadays, you know, you see every single wife is in the in yeah. the locker room with the players, pretty much. And so, uh, yeah, some some things are being left unsaid there. You know, I think that's a pretty fair criticism. We just don't know why or or what will happen, but we may get some uh, resolution here. Uh, you know, as we get forward uh, in the last two episodes, it's also possible. I mean, he has remarried yes. and he has new kids, That's and right. so it could be out of re- it could be out of respect to his new wife. Yes. You know, who just say, "Hey, look, like I don't want to be rubbing this in your face," or, and I would understand that too. You know, right? I completely understand that. Uh, one final question: Sometimes when you have a figure like Michael Jordan, suddenly myths develop around them. He, he becomes almost a mythical figure. Is this tearing down that wall between? Uh, man and mythical figure? Um, I, I don't know. I think that, honestly, this is kind of serving to build the myth up even more, right? <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, you, you know, like, it, it's his version. Yep. It's his version. And, you know, I'm sure there's other things that if, if uh, you know, Ken Burns or one of these documentarians who's kind of criticized the project, if he had come and done this documentary, it might have taken a harsher look. But I think ultimately, like, when I'm looking on Twitter or, or seeing people's email responses to my columns or everything, a lot of people are having a lot of fun watching this yes. thing, right? It's like a trip yep. down memory lane. Yep. You're watching the switch hand layup in, in uh, 91. You're watching the six three-pointers in 92. You're watching him score 55 against the Suns in 93. Uh, you know, talking trash to Gary Payton and winning on <laughs> Father's Day in 96. I mean, he had just an incredible catalog of hits throughout his career. I mean, going back to the dunk contest and the shot at North Carolina and everything yeah. else, and I think for younger audiences especially, it's like, hey, well, it's like an indoctrination meeting. It's like, welcome to the club of, of MJ uh, worship, you know? And I think for people who are alive for a lot of it, it's just a nice refresher and, a, you know, a nice uh, trip down memory lane. So to me, you know, I think uh, he's coming out of this as one of the biggest winners of the whole quarantine, isn't he? I mean, it's like the oh, whole God, world yeah. has been talking about how great he is for five weeks straight. Yeah. You are so right. Ben, it was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this talk today. Yes, sir. You too. Uh, take care and best wishes to everybody out there. Appreciate that very much. We'll come back with more in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK, brought to you by Sunbury Motors. Taking your calls at 800 795 9565. This is The Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Kia, Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf, 
You can go to sunburymotors.com. And you can check out the great line of Ford, Lincoln, Kia, Hyundai, and their great pre-owned inventory. You can check it out online and say, boy, I really like that. And then you can start working out um, a deal because the interest rates are great and you can get it done. From the comfort of your own home, all at sunburymotors.com. Okay, great to have you with us on this uh, Tuesday. And uh, the uh, talk about the Jordan documentary, which is something that uh, there's nothing here that's new. It is not for me. But if you weren't reeling around, or paying attention at that period of time. Okay. This is new to you. I mean, a lot of this is new to Matt. To which I have enjoyed very much. Now you get two more parts. Two more parts. And one thing I've noticed too, Steve, especially in the last, I would say, four episodes, you've gotten a little bit more of an inside look than you did in the first few the only things I would like to have seen and maybe this just wasn't feasible at the time was get into get a little more inside info at, uh, in Jerry's Jerry Krause's decision making on not letting Phil come back after 98 yeah. coming to that decision maybe here's some of the contract negotiations with Scotty Pippen and then maybe more of the decision making of yeah. Pippen's coming, coming in uh, coming coming back late from his injury and, and all that. I would, well, That's the only, I guess, criticism I would have given it. But, I mean, it's been tremendous television. Yeah, Jerry Krause, who, by the way, passed away three years ago, so Jerry Krause is not around to defend himself in any of this. Let's start with this. Make sure that Jerry Krause does get credit for putting this team together. He's the one that drafted Scottie Pippen. Well, he didn't draft him, but he worked it out ahead of time where Seattle would draft him, and then he'd trade. Okay. He's the one that engineered that. He's the one that engineered the deal that sent Charles Oakley, who was very popular in Chicago, to the Knicks for Bill Cartwright. Well, it turned out Bill Cartwright was tremendous uh, for um, the Bulls in his role. And you can tell Bill Cartwright, he comes off really, really well in this documentary. Comes off really well. He comes off as sensitive, competitive, well thought of, intelligent. Well, Krauss made that deal. When the world was giving up on Dennis Rodman, he dealt Will Purdue to uh, San Antonio to get Dennis Rodman. So it's not like he didn't do the job. You know, he, he was able to get Horace Grant, drafted him. Um, it wasn't like he he did a poor job of surrounding Jordan with mediocre talent. He did a great job of surrounding Jordan with talent. I mean, Jordan was the team, you know, the critical figure on that team. But Jordan is not the only guy in that team. You can't win unless you have other quality parts, and they did, and Pippen certainly was 
the ringleader of that, but others were really good. They made sure they had an outside shooter in Paxson. They made sure they had an outside shooter in Steve Kerr. And to his credit, he did that. Now, why he looked at everybody in 1997 and said, this will be Phil Jackson's last year, and essentially essentially what I'm doing now, guys, I'm going to break the team up. Well, who does that? That part is baffling to me. That part is baffling to me. Don't you want to take that? And Dick Girardi, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. Um, But don't you want to take that as far as you can go? And let me give you a great example of that. San Antonio Spurs. Look how long that stayed together, Matt. Because Duncan kept playing. Ginobili kept playing. Tony Parker kept playing, and then they'd surround them with other people. Hey, let's bring in Kawhi Leonard. Let's, you know, let's bring in Danny Green. Let's bring in Patty Mills. And you kept with the same coach, too, Hall of Fame coach. Yeah, yeah Greg Popovich. Um, Just Kraus got greedy. And he got a little bit too full of himself, I think, saying, hey, I can, I've done this once, I can do it again, and starting from scratch and rebuilding it from the top, and then I can win multiple championships without having to spend a whole lot of money on guys. Because let's face it, Scottie Pippen, we, you, you, you talked about with, with Ben in the last segment how much they were able to get that contract at the right time because he was looking for stability, but it wasn't a great contract overall. He just, he just saw seven years, and boom, I got a job for seven years, and that's it. You know, Michael Jordan, there were contract issues there, here and there. He just didn't want to pay guys that a lot of money if he well, didn't have to, and he, if he knew well, he could find other talent as good as what he had. And remember, that's, you know, part of that's, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf's the owner. He controls the money. I mean, Reinsdorf made an incredible comment during the last segment, but we all knew this was true at the time, too. Again, this was no surprise. Jordan was still getting paid his NBA deal when he was playing for Birmingham. He said, well, to be honest with you, he's really underpaid anyway on the NBA level as to what he meant to the league. But uh, not bringing back Phil Jackson, essentially saying I'm going to break it up, that's the part about Jerry Krause's baffling. His ability to spot talent, to be honest with you, a lot of people will tell you whether it was baseball or it was football, or excuse me, baseball or basketball. Because he had been a baseball scout before he became the GM of the Bulls. He was a basketball scout, then he did baseball, then he went back to basketball. They'll tell you he had a great eye for talent. He did not, by the way, draft Jordan. Rod Thorne did. Uh, But they say he had a great eye for talent, and you could tell by the moves he made surrounding Jordan. And I didn't even mention Tony Kukoc. But see, this is where you make the big mistake if you're Jerry Krause. He didn't have... Um, a deft touch with the media and did not have a deft touch with the public. So they signed Tony Kukoc, and he tells everybody like this, the guy is going to be the guy, the whole deal, right? Well, Kukoc is a really good player. I mean, no no, no getting around it. Tony Kukoc is a really good player. He's not, not one of the greatest players of all time. 
you've already got the greatest player of all time sitting on your team at that moment. Right? So why tell everybody that this guy's going to be the guy when you've already got the guy? You know, get up there and say, you know, I think this is a guy that can help us. He can shoot. He's big. He can he can rebound, and he can make us a better team. All right? That's all you have to say. Okay? That's all you have to say about it. You don't have to say anything else. There's no need. I mean, Kukoc is not going to be a Hall of Famer. But he had some great years with Chicago. And that's not bad for somebody who grew up in Croatia and got himself out of there and got himself to the NBA. But you know, you don't like sit there and tell everybody this guy's going to be the next awesome thing when you've already got the awesome thing sitting there. <laughs> And that's why in the Olympics, you know, when they went after him in that game, Pippen and Jordan, like a tag team, had nothing to do with Tony Kukoc. He had everything to do with Jerry Krause. I mean, Kukoc is a guy who averaged 12 points, four rebounds a game in his career. That's good. 11 points, four rebounds, three assists per game in the playoffs. That's good. He's not a Hall of Famer, but he had himself a really – you don't have to be a Hall of Famer to have yourself a really good career. And in Barcelona, when the United States won the gold, he won the silver. (laughs) Silver medal. Okay? Which, essentially, is the gold to everybody else. (laughs) It's the gold medal because you got second place to the U.S. that year. But Kukoc was a really good player. The problem was, is that Kukoc... Jerry Krause gave him all these accolades when he went in there. And you've got Pippen, who's one of the really great players in the league, looking around like, well, what about me? <laughs> Jordan's like, what? See, that's where you end up with a public relations problem. When you don't... Um, when you don't uh, have a deft feel for how to handle the media or public relations. And Jerry Krause didn't. There are ways of saying things where you look around and say, you know what? He's 6'11". He can pass. He can rebound. I'm looking to the future future of the team, and this is a guy I think that can be another Another key component to us winning. We're really fortunate we got a Michael Jordan. We're really fortunate we got a Scottie Pippen. But we're always trying to figure out how we can surround them with the right mix to win. And we think Tony Kukoc is part of that right mix. Now, if you'd say it that way, <laughs> isn't it a little bit less? Ah, that was Jerry Krause's problem. And believe me, in the 90s, everybody knew Jerry Krause was not what you would call universally respected. 
We'll come back. We'll wrap it up. We'll talk a little bit more about the Bill Madden New York Daily News article in a moment on minor league baseball here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Brought to you by Sunbury Motors. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way. The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. Okay, welcome. Great to have you back on the uh, show today. Brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. And you go to sunburymotors.com. Ford, Lincoln, Kia, Hyundai, great pre-owned inventory. You can check it all out online. Pick out something you really like, and guess what? You can get the process going to buy it. All at sunburymotors.com. Okay. The um, weekly column by and commentary by Bill Madden, New York Daily News. And Bill Madden is one of those guys that uh, if he calls you, no matter who you are, you'll either A, pick it up, or B, you absolutely will call back. He has that kind of great reputation among those who cover the sport. And he talked about the destruction of minor league baseball financially this summer. That's what the premise was behind the article, which is something we've touched on a little bit, not much. I really have maybe a sentence here or there on the show the last two months about this because, you know, we don't, you know, you don't know um what the situation is with major league baseball let alone minor league baseball uh, the owners have put together their plan to play it looks like an 82 game schedule uh, but now they're negotiating with the players and this is not one of those glamour weeks for baseball there's going to be some back and forth between owners and players about money and so forth and supposedly part of this is a taxi squad. I mean, do you have some minor league baseball? You might have triple A, double A, because, you know, they have some reserves. The question is, how far down does it filter? Now, short season, there's only going to be five rounds of the draft. But as Bill points out, Bill Madden, in his column, he says, look, uh, The bottom line is uh, 
is that here's here's one of the quotes. As one minor league owner told me, Bill Madden, last week, as bad as it will be to have no season this year, an even worse scenario would be for us to have a season with no fans. What's the point? There would be still no revenue, and we'd still have to pay all of our employees. There are no TV and radio contracts. I mean, yeah, there's radio, obviously, maybe an occasional game on TV, but that this isn't... Hey, we have a TV deal with Fox. We have a TV deal with ESPN. Our radio contract is worth X amount. We have a regional television network. Minor League Baseball doesn't have that. You know, their games being on the radio or, or to make sure that the publicity of getting the game is out there. It's part of their marketing to have it on radio, to be honest with you. It's not a depth of a revenue source. And, you know, it's selling advertising in the ballpark. It's selling advertising in the walls. It's concessions. It's ticket sales. So you may lose teams. You talk about the contraction of 40 teams. You may lose teams in minor league baseball just through attrition. Looking around saying, oh, we can't do this anymore. You may have that. You may get down to 120 just with that. But then there was this sentence. He starts out by saying uh, the tentative agreement in which all four short-season leagues, New York, Penn, Appalachian, Pioneer, and Northwest leagues would be eliminated. Each of the 30 major league teams would have only four minor league affiliates, triple, double, high A, low A. Everybody knew that part. Uh, they would be allowed to maintain teams in the Gulf Coast League and the Dominican Summer League if they choose to do so. Most, but here's the here's the sentence that just like jumped out and said, "Yo, what?" Most, but not all, of the short season teams would disappear. Here it is now. Many of the New York Penn League teams, including Brooklyn, Hudson Valley, Lowell, State College. Mahoning Valley and possibly Staten Island would be merged into the low A South Atlantic League as its newly created Northern Division. Now, we'll see if what the accuracy of that is, but obviously somebody told him that. Now, who? Who knows? Is that the final version? No. But this is a the New York Daily News, all right? So as a New York paper, I could see why they included Brooklyn and then the wobbly Staten Island franchise. And the Staten Island's wobbly. Everybody admits they're probably going away. And then, of course, Hudson Valley, which is close. So I could see why. Why didn't he keep it to that? He threw in Lowell State College and Mahoney Valley. There are people that read the New York Daily News that have no idea where Mahoney Valley is. But he included them, and I thought that was interesting.